Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Hi, this is John Barber, and welcome to Talking Movies Number 17, all those movies that you love to go to, the ones that you love to say, would not even exist if the words first weren't put on paper. So to me, of all the artists who get involved in making the movies that I love, the ones that I admire the most are the writers. And one of the writers I admire a great deal is the author of this terrific, interesting book, called Marlon and Greg. It's about his decades-long experience and friendship with two of the most traditional stars in American movies and absolute polar opposites. I mean, you got Gregory Peck, who's solid and traditional. Then you have the outrageous and totally talented Marlon Brando. And not only is my guest a terrific writer, but he's also a very successful actor and for decades, a very successful illustrator. So it is my delight and honor and privilege to introduce now this very multi-talented artist. Here's Joseph Brutzman. Joseph, how are you? Where are you? And do your friends call you Joe or Joseph? You can call me Joe. That'd be great. I'm in Montana. I work for a great company right now, producing a lot of things for uh, basic cable and streaming and... Uh, motion pictures they're called warm springs and uh they uh they do a lot of great things and, and it, within that time when i'm producing i had time last about a year and a half and i said i gotta put this stuff down about marlon and greg before i forget it um <laughs> and i got the book out there so i it's, john thank you so much for having me and thank you for for giving the, the book a read and everything it's just really an honor to meet you well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm wondering, where are you? It's called Missoula, Montana. Okay, hang on a second. You've got a Los Angeles area code phone number. <laughs> yes, yeah. So why, why that? Well, you know, as, as you saw in the book, you know, these, these, these days in media, you end up in all kinds of places. Yes. I, I think it used to not be that way. At least when you and I were working uh, back in the day, you'd be in New York or Los Angeles quite often. And then I really, you know, I can tell you once I think basic cable uh, changed things and 
long story short, it's all over now. And so, oh my uh, gosh, it is over. And I'm going to get your impressions about that as we go along. Yeah. So, I mean, here we are doing a show. I'm in Montana. I think you're in Las Vegas, I believe, and in yeah. that area. Yeah. And, how, how, how long did you live in Los Angeles? I was there. Uh, I I had gone to school in New York, and then I got there in Los Angeles at about uh, must have been '83, and then. Um, by the year 2000 and so, there just started to be a lot of work in television outside of Los Angeles. So you um, were there about 20 years? Yeah. I was yeah. there on and off for about 40. And uh, my son's um, my son, unfortunately, lives there. You know, I have a lot of people say to me, what brings you to uh, Las Vegas? And I say Los Angeles, because I'm going <laughs> to tell you something, Joe, I wouldn't go back for free money. I'm sure that you might have spent a lot of great evenings dining and talking with Greg or Marlon at Musso and Frank. <laughs> yeah, there's a few places you like there. Yes, as you, there, that's a great, great place, obviously. But I know where you're going with this. I, I get back there now and I sit there on the 405 for about an hour. And I know it sounds cliche, but it gets worse every Oh, my God. This is how bad it is. You know, my son is uh, going bad. And we're going to talk about this, a difference between television, uh, network television, and television outside of network television. Because my son, on his birthday in January 29th, he he debuted on Netflix an eight-part series called In From The Cold. And it was quite successful, but they didn't pick it up. But uh, CBS was glad he didn't pick it up because they called him to come back and executive produce the bringing back of criminal minds. And the thing is that when you have a show on network television, as you know, you get residuals. So we're celebrating. We go to Moose on Franks. They have <laughs> sold the parking lot. So on the parking lot now is a condominium. You have to park on the streets where it is not safe. Yeah. And I so and you know at one time, myself and Steven Spielberg were the only two people that have credit cards in Musso and Frank. So no, we're not going back there. But what I want to know from you, if we're we're making a movie of Joseph Brutzman's life, where would it start? Tell me a little bit about your background, your parents. Uh, your early interest, did you really want to get involved with movies or what movies had the most influence on you or was it television? You had the stage. Well, I, you know, I grew up in Minnesota and uh, small town Minnesota, but my father was a nightclub entertainer that back when these supper clubs had to have people seven nights a week. He was this amazing musician. And um, I could see that, you know, he was a very colorful guy who, uh, had a lot of fans in that area, and I kind of grew up with that. But I did love film and TV a lot. I really did. What and, were the first films or television shows that had an impact on you? You know, I what really hit me, as much as I saw all the, the I'll go to television first, as much as I saw all the animated stuff, because I was an illustrator, so I loved cartoons and animation, that thing. But by the time I was 12, and you'll you'll remember this era well, All in the Family came on. And I just thought like the lights came on 
Yeah, I saw one of your cartoons. It was terrific. Yes, and I had done a comic strip of All in the Family, which is how I met Lear's, Norman Lear and his people. And that that's a whole other long story. But it was, um, you know, that, that changed things for me. I just thought, wow, TV could really be about something. In fact, I remember I was 12 and I pinched myself. You just, you'd watch All in the Family, as you might recall, and you'd say, can CBS put this on? Is this is this for real? And 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 yet, you you started to realize, you know, look at the time, motion pictures they were just it was just a few years before they started a rating system, and you and suddenly we went from, you know, sound of music to the graduate very quickly when you think about it. So yes. that was a very confusing time for me as a very young person, but I knew that films had such impact, and I have to jump a few years ahead to where you come in, because I distinctly remember thinking I wanted to work in television. So many people wanted to work in television. We all dreamt of all these networks that would pop up, but I remembered looking at shows like, like yours, like real people and these things thinking, you know, pretty soon one day we're going to just start putting more people in front of cameras and almost like shooting at first and writing it later, finding out about people that, are between the news and entertainment. Oh, what a great observation. Because, you know, when the show, it, I only got it on by accident. And I must tell you, I'm a non-believer. But all of the wonderful things that have happened to me, getting the first uh, morning talk show on ABC in L.A. and getting real people on the air and becoming Sinatra's private writer for four years. Joseph, all of these things happened by accident. It was like divine intervention but when I got finally got real people on the air my wife said to me what what do you think will happen and I said television is going to get worse I mean for the uh, for the five years that I was winning awards as the first critic in America to talk movies on television mm-hmm. I never had a contract because if I signed a contract they would own my work and coming from a dysfunctional family Surely dysfunctional. It had to get closer to be dysfunctional. I didn't want to, my work was me, so I didn't want anybody else to own it. So I was unemployable when I was 46 and had the number one show when I was 47. But my wife said, What is going to happen to television? And Joseph, it's what when you said, I said, Honey, this show, Real People, is like opening a bottle of Lafitte Rothschild wine. It just tastes terrific. But if you leave wine out there, it turns to vinegar. And what is going to happen with television is going to get worse and worse. Because, Joseph, when you and I started, you had to have a modicum of talent, of intelligence, of personality. These are all things that would make you unemployable in television today. I mean, the only talent you need now to be a star in reality television you have a have to have a talent to never be embarrassed. Okay, <laughs> it's so a shamelessness. Yes, it, it 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 is. So to me, when you mentioned All in the Family and Real People, that was the last high point of American television. Absolutely, and, yeah. Certainly and, with networks, especially. And I I agree with you so much, John. That uh, I'm not a fan of what goes on or what is called reality. But what is what is interesting, I think, as we've seen. The techniques have, I think, obviously because the technology has changed, has led to streaming, has led to video looking at f- like film. That was a huge thing. You know, I, I got one of the first editing systems when 
you know, film was starting to d disappear. And I, I, I became an editor because I knew this is how it's going to happen. You're going to put stuff together like this. But people always forget one of the bigger things that was really difficult, a, a hurdle, was when videotape kind of disappeared, if you will, or, or started to look like film. And then film and videotape became what now is just media. And right. that was a huge thing because we would distinctly remember the look between video and film. Right. And now, speaking of look, i got to get back to when you were a young illustrator. Yeah. Uh, did your father have more influence on your on you than your mother? Because it seems to me there are such a thing as stage mothers, but your father seemed to be a stage father. Yeah, uh, he you, was. Yeah. He took your drawings to... What? Yes, he, he took my drawings to a newspaper and I had a comic strip. And at the same time he was playing, I was a drummer for him. No, he was definitely a stage father, very much the opposite of my mother. And because I think he gave me enough confidence, I, my sister and I both got into Juilliard to jump ahead. And so we were wow. Juilliard performers. We were actors in the Juilliard school starting in 1979. And that changed everything, too, because I, I went... I kind of wanted to go to L.A. and become an animator, but I, I also had done acting and my sister was a wonderful actress. And we um, we got into the school together. And that was a huge step, of course, because uh, Did you have to audition. Oh, yes. Yeah. And they you know, that was the what the, I think was so unusual about the the whole thing was, uh, you know, they look at quite a few people and somehow they saw both of us in the in the same family and. That was very unique at that time. I don't know if it's happened before, since, but uh, it's, a, it's a very, you know, challenging school, to say the least. I mean, I always, we both used to joke, it's easier to go through it without your sibling. Because <laughs> uh, they're really, back then it was really brutal. It was very brutal. And, you know, it's much easier to go through that without watching your, your sibling get, get pummeled every day. At Juilliard, aside from just being acquainted with your sister... <laughs> Did you meet anybody who became a star subsequently? Well, you know, in my class, Kevin Spacey was a classmate. Uh, Kelly McGillis, who was in Top Gun. Uh, Elizabeth oh, McGovern, wow. who's still in uh, Downton Abbey. Ving Rhames, who uh, we see in Pulp Fiction and things like that. Oh, and, wow, that's terrific. So yeah. did, did you get any work on stage or in television once you got out of Juilliard? Oh, yeah, that's how I got out there because, uh, I mean, I got out to L.A. right after that, and I was on a couple series, The Slap Maxwell Story with Dabney Coleman and uh, okay. Scarecrow, Mrs. Oh, King. Hey, hang on a second. You go to L.A. and you don't get big parts. You get a co-starring part in the television series? I, got, I was... Recurring character on a couple series, and I did like acting, but here's the thing that was really key about Juilliard. I met Anthony Peck. This was Greg's son, Anthony. Uh -huh. And we became writing partners. We were like the only two from the class to go out to L.A. after school because Juilliard kind of teaches you to stay in New York and stay with stage and, you know, do that. But I love film and TV. And he had his family out there. And I think, you know, for whatever reasons, we were the only two to go out to L.A. and We've been classmates for four years and we became, you know, we were good friends already. We said we should write something. We started writing and that's how it happened. We, we became writers and we sold a few things. And of course I met Gregory through Tony and um, that was, it's still a great friendship. Tony and I still write projects. And uh, so that was to me, uh, as well, much as with, I with, with a major star's son as your partner, 
you had an introduction to the elite when you got to Los Angeles, which was a big break for you. One of the things that always bothers me about some people who become successful is they never compliment either their agent or their manager. Manager, And I could name two people, Woody Allen and Harry Belafonte would have never existed without Jack Rollins. I've read that, yes. Most brilliant manager. Was an agent helpful for, for you more so than Tony? Well, it was it was all a combination, but you're absolutely right. A, a wonderful agent named Susan Smith brought me out to L.A. And once Tony and I started selling scripts, no less than Swifty Lazar was our agent. Oh, my gosh. That is so, so yeah, he, we, we, we could probably hand that guy blank paper and he could make the deal. Oh, yes. Uh, but, you know, again, I could never have met Irving. Without without the Peck family, of course, and yet I still we had to have a good script. And our first script, uh, agented by by Swifty, was uh, something for 20th Century Fox, and then we were off and running. But yes, absolutely. And in oh, fact, okay, so let's find out now because I wanted to ask you what films did you see that had the greatest impact on you when you were a youngster. When was the first time you saw Gregory Peck in a movie? And what, uh, I, it's a stupid question. I know what you're going to say. What movie most impressed you about Gregory Peck? And it has to be To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, that, that's an Peck. impressive film. I have to put that down. The first film, though, I remembered seeing, and I write about it in the book, is I, I saw Marooned. And I saw Marooned in school. And I was shocked uh, as I go into the, uh, there's a part of the book where I just talk about, I was so in love with movies and here's my school showing this 16 millimeter film that I didn't know how they got the film. I didn't know how this worked in small town, Minnesota. I was quite young. And I remembered seeing uh, Gregory Peck in Marooned and I was just so thrilled. And I, my mother loved Gregory Peck. And, and of course, I, I, I knew who he was through films I probably didn't understand well that I would see back then. You know, I mean, being a very young person watching Roman Holiday, you don't even get the nuance of all of it, of course. You're just too young. I'm sure I didn't get the nuance of Maroon. I certainly wouldn't even have gotten the the, the nuance uh, of To Kill a Mockingbird until seeing it later, you know, in my teens. Uh, I just wouldn't have understood all the importance of it, I think. But uh, I think Gre- Greg's made so many amazing movies that, I, I, I think people have to go back and look at some of these because they're just one of the you know, obviously gentlemen's agreement and films like that are just incredible. Oh, he was so solid on the screen, but To Kill a Mockingbird is really a masterpiece of movie making. Incredible. And I don't think any other actor could have been the anchor that Gregory Peck was in that film. So yeah. you've seen all these movies, but you've never met the man. <laughs> what was it like when Tony took you, listen, he didn't take you to Motel 6, you know, he took <laughs> you to a mansion in Bel Air. Or, what was it like for you coming from Minnesota? Yeah, from Minnesota. No, it wasn't comfortable. I, 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 I just was, it was just surreal. And I had met Greg a few times on and off as before we were writing, but once we sold the script, uh, I really met Greg because we ended up working for him. That's a whole other story. But when I really got to know Greg, uh, it was a constant um, exercise in, in, in yeah, just trying to 
comprehend who he was and who these people were because I was a huge fan when I was a young person. So as I write about in the book, they, the, the Pecks would have these parties at their Carrollwood estate that were just amazing. You'd see Sinatra and you'd get to meet uh, Walter Matthau and Lemon, Sidney Poitier and Shirley MacLaine. And I, <laughs> so, well, you know, the movie that he made that surprised me and it's its success totally surprised me was the omen, which you write really well about in your book. Yeah, that changed a lot of stuff. You know, uh, both Greg and Marlon had this interesting stretch between the 60s and the 70s where, you know, it could have gone either way probably just because Hollywood, they'd been right, you know, Greg had been there since the 40s, Marlon got there in the 50s, and here, you know, Hollywood had changed so much. And, you know, of course, Marlon had the Godfather in the 70s, but Greg had this hit that was just as big financially. And I think it changed Hollywood almost as much as the Godfather was the omen. And it was it was just, as I say, they it really brought back all these A-list thrillers. Yeah, and it, it was huge. And Greg was very smart about how he did it financially. And um, it changed, yeah, so much. And it still holds up. That's a, it's a great movie. Richard Donner is an amazing director. Yes, excellent. And I'm going to set Marlon aside for just a minute because I have more questions about Greg. When you met him and got to know him personally, were you surprised or disappointed by any of his observations about politics or life or religion or anything where America was going now? Tell me. That's a great question, John. I mean, I, I, I knew so much about Gregory Peck before I met him, which is sometimes good, sometimes bad, as you know. You can, you can kind of overdose on what you think you know. And, and I, I, I knew where his politics were. I, didn't, I probably didn't know that the passions were so real and so fierce. Because I knew he was, uh, when I was younger, you know, I knew he was very responsible for keeping uh, Robert Bork off the Supreme Court. He was part of a public campaign that really had, didn't exist until stuff like that happened. He was very political, of course. And when I saw him, as I write about in the book, when he would talk about people, he knew well, like Ronald Reagan and, and other politicians. Um, I could just see his passion was very different than almost any area of life. You know, he, he was very political and I, I sensed he was, I guess what we could call them very progressive and liberal. And um, he was immensely well-read. He was solidly intelligent. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Abs- absolutely so. Now he wrote, it, I found this in a number of actors that I've known who've been monumentally successful they grow to have a little disrespect for their own profession. That's a strange thing to say, but tell me some of the things that you have in your book that both he and Marlon Brando said about acting. Yeah, that's really, uh, John, that is the key of the book in a certain way that they had these different attitudes about the business. And I think Marlon's are pretty legendary and, 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 I, I don't like to say it's fully disrespectful. He understood everything about the business, but he had a different kind of fame that was, I think, really uh, it, it it didn't it didn't sit well with him as it would with probably a lot of people. Gregory, 
he fully understood the business. He knew what it was. He was not naive about it, but I think he was very, always grateful to the business. He was a member of the Academy. He, I think he was president for a while. He uh, produced uh, one of the broadcasts. He helped start the American Film Institute. You he, remember one of the lines that you had in the book that I, I, I didn't write it down. I thought I would remember it because I just loved it. Uh, about his actual comment about acting. Well, yeah, I, I laugh because I, I one time, Greg actually said, you have to be a little crazy to be an actor. Greg yeah. said that. Yeah, right. and, and Marlon said something a lot, much more coarse about what well, you have listen, to do. To you go ahead and say it. What did Marlon say? Marlon said, you have to be willing to take a shit on stage to be an actor. <laughs> now, okay. You, Right now, now, look, all we have to do is think of Last Tango in Paris and realize, of course, this man would. Yeah, well, you know how lucky he was. You probably know more so than I I do. He had made Last Tango in Paris before he had done The Godfather. Now, I read Laurence Olivier's autobiography. I didn't believe it when he wrote that he was the one that was first offered the part to star as The Godfather. Is that true? I've read that. And then you might have read, of course, that it seems everyone wanted that role. Frank Sinatra even supposedly talked to Coppola about it. And Ernest Borgnine was taking out ads in the paper saying, hire me. Everybody wanted that. And Olivier, yeah, they say Robert Evans thought Olivier is probably the only guy he was never, he was not going to go with Brando. And what you said about Tango is fascinating because I've always said, you know, Godfather got released first. And I totally believe that if that hadn't happened, people would have just thought, oh, Marlon Brando is doing a porno movie. now." I I think because of the Godfather and how giant it was, I think people look back and they saw, my God, he's an artist. He Well, I want to get to the point of the guy that I think is most responsible for that. But the reason I brought up Last Tango it was, I believe, uh, Bob Evans said every actor got $35,000 to d- be in The Godfather. And Marlon Brando had a piece of Last Tango in Paris. So the Godfather came out, he gets $35,000, but he becomes a mega millionaire because he owns a large hunt of Last Tango. But I am so proud of you because nobody points out in anything that they write about the Godfather, that I think the guy who actually made and saved that film is Bob Evans. Yeah, I was really heartened just a couple of weeks ago when when Coppola came out and at the Oscars and thanked Robert Evans. And I wrote it. I write a chapter about Bob, as you, as you know, in the book. And I think Evans was a fascinating guy. I didn't know him, of course, till. I didn't know him back in the Paramount days, but that's when I was a kid, just starry-eyed, especially about Paramount movies. There was something about those films that were really smart. As I said, you know, they would take these best-selling books and give them to hip young directors. And then we have Love Story and Rosemary's Baby and The Godfather. And it was a smart move. And Evans became good friends with Tony, my writing partner, Anthony Peck. And he would he introduced me to Bob and then we'd we'd see Bob every now and then. And these were the, the cotton club years, very interesting, difficult years for Robert. Um, But he was a fascinating guy. And I think now the smoke is cleared. I think people are going to look back and say, Robert Evans was, was was more than just a character. uh, 
um, I mean, the, the Godfather is a perfect movie. Yeah. It is impossible to tune into that movie and stop watching it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's one of those you just, yeah. okay, now I, yeah. I got to watch it. I found okay. it. Okay, Bob Evans, even though Coppola was editing, Bob Evans looked over his shoulder and was as responsible for the editing of that film as anyone. Can mm-hmm. I tell you a quick little story about Bob Evans? Yes, please. Okay, well, as a critic, you know, I was all, often called by... Uh, producers and directors after Marty Scorsese publicly thanked me for saving his movie, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Warner Brothers hated the film. They're going to dump it and they put it in the Westwood Theater. I saw it and I raved about it and they decided uh, Marty called me and said, hey, would you call my bosses at Warner's? And I said, no, it's a conflict. He says, please, John, because you'll save the film. Two weeks later, it was interviewed by Calendar Magazine and thanked me for that, which was a wonder. So I started to get calls, and I got a call from Bob Evans. And he asked me two or three times if I'd come down and check out some of the stuff he was doing. And I said, no, it's a conflict. So finally, he made a movie called Black Tuesday. You remember with Robert Shaw? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and Bruce Dern, I think, was the villain in it. Okay, okay. right. So anyway... He calls me down to the studio and he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed you. You have wine, whatever. And I want you to watch Black Tuesday. And I said, listen, you know, I'm only doing it because I admired how you saved the Godfather. OK. And he 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 applauded. He said, oh, somebody knows it. So I said, but, you know, I, it may prevent me from reviewing it. He said, I just want your impressions of it. So we're going to see it. So when I, after I saw it and I come back in, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, you know, uh, uh, it, it takes place at the Super Bowl, I think, in New Orleans. And so there are 50,000 people at the game and the villain is down below. The villain's Bruce Dern. I guess he's going to blow up something. Robert Shaw is up in the stands. And I said, he's a telephone on him. Okay. He finds out the Dern is down there and he starts jumping over people and running down to the truck. I said, he's got a phone. Why didn't he just pick up the phone or have him try the phone? It doesn't work. <laughs> and he yelled at me. He said, God damn it. I spent $50,000 on that fucking scene and I'm not touching it. So he left it in the film. I bombed the film because of that scene. It died in the last conversation with Bob Evans. But I never lost my respect for him. Good anyway. for you. No, that, that was a, a tough film to get through. I remember oh, as a kid. <laughs> Lots of them are tough, but I must tell you something. Quite honest. People used to ask me when I when I was a critic, you know, did you review with your mind? Did you re- review with your heart? Did you review with your soul? And I said, no, I reviewed with my ass. And if my ass moved, there was something wrong with the film. I used my mind to determine what my ass was telling me. And I said, also, I must tell you this. I think movies are a lot like human beings. 99 out of 100 are absolute shit. But the one comes along that makes up going through those terrible 99 worthwhile. And that's why I love artists. That's why I love your book. Now, I want to get to Marlon Brando. Because to me, he, of course, he was one of the most interesting and unique actors in history. No question about that. 
The thing that bothered me was that he got overweight and he got lazy. Uh, back in the 70s, after they made Meeting and the Bounty, uh, oh my God, James Mason, an absolutely wonderful actor on Mutiny and the Bounty. I had the opportunity to interview him and I was surprised he was honest as he was. He said the only actor he never wanted to work with again was Marlon Brando. And I said, how could you say that? He's so interesting. He said he refused to memorize his lines. He was lazy, he put everything on a cue card. And you know how difficult it is to talk to an actor like that. I was stunned that James Mason would say that, but it was true. But it is difficult not to look at some. You know, when he plays a dramatic character, there is nobody as interesting, maybe De Niro or Al Pacino, but nobody as interesting as Marlon. But when they try to play something light, it doesn't quite work as well. So what was it like when you first saw Marlon on the screen, then you first met him, and you spent hours, not only hours and hours with him, but you made a movie with him. I think he even made a great documentary with him. Well, I got to work on a few things with Marlon, and um, I... I... I talk about in the book where it's funny. I, I I went to Juilliard knowing far more about uh, things that were interesting to me, like like Norman Lear's world, Woody Allen. I loved as a, as a young person. Um, uh, Star Wars had come out, and George Lucas. I found that world fascinating. And I mentioned that because I remember watching Brando, and I'll mention Olivier too. I would watch those guys as a young person. I was just, I was, I didn't know who they were, but I was intimidated just watching Brando and Olivier when they were, you think of those, those young black and white images of either. Oh, They're just, it's like daunting. And I mentioned them both because once I got to Juilliard, they were the religions. I mean, it was either about Brando or Olivier. It was, you know, those were the two standards of what you were going for. And really what it was is trying to mix, you know, a very method technique at Juilliard with, technical aspects you know you have to be up on stage you have to change your speech you can't sound like you're from minnesota anymore you have to do all this technical stuff and that's where of course actors like olivier and these amazing stage athletes like Lawrence olivier are important uh brando of course influenced all the teachers who were there at juilliard of course i knew who brando was uh i but i have to say it was it was i was younger I, I knew of The Godfather, of course. I'd heard of Streetcar and, 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 and On the Waterfront. I would uh, watch Late Show of Viva Zapata and, and Tea House of the August Moon. I, I, back then, as you recall, if I go back to the 70s, you know, Marlon sometimes made more, got more attention just not doing movies than he did doing the movie. Absolutely. And we're going to get to some of the things that he was outspoken about, which I thought were absolutely wonderful. Now, but you have Tony introducing you to his father how did you meet marlon and how did it become such a close friendship well what happened was i was uh on a uh, i played dabney coleman's son in a one season show called the slap maxwell story it was a great abc show really too good one of those too good for tv things <laughs> and um 1987 and 88 uh, dabney was great i mean he's he's the funniest guy i just i really love dabney coleman and uh, in the art department was this young lady, uh, Avra Douglas, this beautiful young girl working in the art department. And we, we fell in love. And she grew up in Hollywood. Uh, and she knew a lot of, well, she knew the Brando children. She'd gone to school with them. 
And Marlon knew her well, and everyone who knew Avra loved Avra. It's still that way today. And Avra and I were together for a long time. And through Avra, I met Marlon. We, Avra and I ultimately married. But uh, if I go back to that time, Avra was, uh, after I was moving more from acting into writing, Avra was moving more from, say, television production into being Marlon's assistant. Oh, wow. And she helped his family out during that very difficult time with the, the, the murder in the house and all that yes. stuff. Because oh, wow. she, she was very close to Cheyenne Brando, who was a young girl who was very much at the center of that horrible situation. So uh, Marlon really needed Avra, and he, he loved her dearly like a daughter. And today she's one of the people who runs his estate. And, I mean, oh, that's how trusted she is by him. So I... I, I, I tell in the book, I have to say, I didn't want to meet Marlon. I knew Greg <laughs> by then. And I just, I think it was almost a year or more where I just said, I, I don't, I, I don't know how I'll react. I don't, I, you know, he was Marlon Brando. Um, she worked every day at Marlon's house, but I just kind of put that off till finally one day Marlon said, well, I got to meet this guy. And um, by then I had sold a couple screenplays with Tony and I met Marlon and we, we hit it off quite well. And I think being Marlon, <laughs> he's one of the few people who would re he respected the fact that I didn't want to meet him. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And so he, he felt that I, I think that helped out in some way. And then I learned he liked to write screenplays. He would do this all day. And I was already writing with Tony, but he, and this is what I was afraid of in a certain way, because I knew a lot about him from Avra, of course, and I knew about this screenplay. He always liked to sit there and dabble with screenplays all day. And I thought, I can't say no to people. And if Marlon Brando asked me to be a part of any of it, I, I won't be able to say no. It doesn't matter if I have a schedule or anything. He's, he's, he's Marlon Brando, for God's sake. And sure enough, <laughs> first time I met him, he, he's showing me his, these old screenplays he was kind of still working on every now and then. And I got into that world. And so pretty soon I was, I was pretty thick into, into his universe. And while I was still writing with Tony and even working with Greg, I, I probably had much more time and, and hours put into being with Marlon uh, just because really because you, Marlon was you? kind of a loner and okay. Greg of course had the whole family and all that. Were you, were you the principal writer of easy money? Well, this was called free money. Free and money that's the one yeah. he did. And yes, Tony and I wrote that together and we had it for a while. And it's so funny because it was by then that Irving Lazar kind of thought, well, I don't know. It was a movie about the Midwest and Irving didn't like it that well. And we, we got a new agent after that only because I think Irving was, he was, he was quite old and he was not into day-to-day -day agenting at that time anyway, as you can imagine. So we had a new agent that, that had that, that connected that script to some people who made it uh, in Hollywood. And we got it to Marlon through a whole series of circumstances that are in the book. And Marlon did it. It turned out to be his last starring role. He played this yes. crazy prison warden. And um, Okay, so now I have to ask you, I put this on pause a minute. It is about Marlon. Did he ever talk, and the reason I'm bringing it up is obvious, did he ever talk to you about the Sashin Little Feather uh, incident? And the reason I bring it up is because of this, you know, nobody watches the Oscars anymore. 
And nobody knew the Oscars was on the other day until Will Smith punched Chris Rock in the mouth. And thank God for Will Smith, because they finally got the Ukraine off the news. But I mean, and there's a standing ovation for this idiot, Will, Will Smith. I remember Marlon, I believe, got the Oscar. And, and can you tell that story, what he got the Oscar for and how he picked because he was always involved in Indian affairs, wounded me and all. I had enormous respect for him. He was risking his life doing this. And did he not choose Sashin Littlefeather to accept the award? Yes, yes, a great memory. Yeah, he, um, well, he had been, he, he went to Wounded Knee and he was yes. very much involved with uh, Dennis Banks and Russell Means and the whole oh, okay. movement. Okay, now you continue, but the reason I bring it up, they booed her and they booed Marlon and yet they stand and applaud Will Smith. I just, te- I just texted that the other day to someone. I said, I said, what would happen if they would have booed Will Smith like they did Sashi Littlefeld? Oh, good I mean, for you. Serendipity, I, I we're on the same way. I wave. know, that's amazing, John, because I had the same thought. I thought I remembered that well. And he, you know, and really, it's amazing how well that's remembered in this sense. People forget that George C. Scott, two years before, didn't accept the Oscar. Right. But he just, he just decided, you know, George C. Scott just said, I don't like actors competing. He was the first guy ever to do that. And that just went away. But then Brando, two years later, he was very deep into the movement. And he, he yeah, I, I think, and, and again, that's a great example where I think Greg and Marlon really parted ways. I look back now and I think, at the time, Greg was very much in the Academy. And I always tried to figure out, even all throughout the book, why Marlon and Greg didn't seem to like each other well. There was a lot of stories. Who knows? I think I think part of it, if I were to... But they both loved you. Well, <laughs> what happened, well, I just, I knew them, I, I think because they, I, I don't know, it was a very nice situation where between Tony and Avra, I had such wonderful introductions to these men. But I do go on and on in the book that they would always just end the day saying, well, what's he doing today? They would just kind of, and what they, what they both meant is like, Greg would be asking, what's Brando doing today? What does he ever do? <laughs> and and, and Greg, Marlon would say the same thing about Greg. And I never really, I could never press the point of what you, you don't seem to like this gentleman. What, what is it? But you know, you knew them well after a while and you kind of realized they're just so different. And I do think that the key is a certain kind of respect for the industry. And I think back when, I think when Marlon refused that Oscar, I, not that that meant anything to, to, to Gregory, but I think he was, he was such a champion and a, a spokesperson for the Academy at the time to watch Brando do that. Um, I think he thought that was just so disrespectful to the business. At the same time, Marlon knew back then how to get attention for something he cared about, which was the name uh, what, of which is, which is better or which is worth worse, to disrespect the academy or to disrespect the Indian nations. Yeah, and, and, and you know, people said back then when they booed her, they thought, oh, why bring this into our party or whatever they were mad about at the Oscars? I have no idea. And it was one of the first times that the Academy really did have something very political going on. Now it kind of just seems people bring politics to the Oscars all the time in some respect. But I think Marlon was one of the first people, and you you might know other instances, 
where, you know, he really brought something political into the Oscars that night. He was absolutely the first one. Yeah. And in movies, I did, recently did a, a, a two, a two uh, series on the great speeches in films. And one of the greatest speech, and when it was announced, I was going to do that from all around the world, Joseph. I got notes from people saying, you have to include the great Dick Deere speech written and performed by Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, I did. Okay, now, Chaplin does this in the 40s before the Second World War and is booed. And is not only booed, Hoover ceased to it. The guy is kicked out of the country. Yeah. And, and I think now, even though that is bad, I, when I look at America, I see it going downhill a lot. But as far as Marlon goes, he has to know that he was a, an absolutely wonderful actor. And there had to be some films that he absolutely loved doing and was proud that he did them. Can you think of a couple that he might say that about? You know, the movie Burn is a very interesting film. It's 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 hard to find. It's 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 really about just man's inhumanity to man and all the battles and and, and uh it's it's a very complex film. But the film Burn he talked about a lot. And he was very happy to do dry white season uh at the height of the apartheid movement. Yes. Um and he he constantly wanted, I think, to well, he's very proud of Viva Zapata and, and films that he felt, you know, showed uh That is it, my one of my, my wife is Mexican and Viva Zapata is one of very, very favorite films. Emiliano, Emiliano, she just yeah. sobs every time she hears that. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. And by the way, I think it's interesting today, you know, Marlon could never play parts like that. I mean, he wouldn't be cast in parts like that or certainly Tea House of the August Moon. And because he was a character actor, you know, he loved playing characters like that. You know, well, uh, the, the thing I, I tried to find the documentary that you guys made, but I didn't have enough time where tell me the name of the documentary. Uh, tell me where we can find it. Do we buy it or do we Google it? And well, I mentioned two projects that fall in that category in, in the book. And one you won't find because he made a series of acting tapes called Lying for a Living. Oh, is that the And they didn't get released. And, and part of that was to a, an extent. Uh, well, I think about, didn't, didn't HBO or Showtime show some of those? Well, here's the thing. Here's the, the other thing, the other uh, project you might be thinking of, because I do talk about it in there. Also, is a thing called uh, Listen to Me, Marlon, which is a great film. Listen to Me, Marlon, is, it came out about three years ago. And it was, uh, they got all of his old tapes. He used to talk to himself all the time. He'd give himself therapy, if you will. And even the acting tapes that I edited, we, they got all the audio for this. And uh, they made this, this great documentary called Listen to Me, Marlon. And I always say, if you want to know, like you really want to get to know Marlon, that's a great one. And of course, as you might know about a conversation with Gregory Peck, which is a documentary his daughter made. I mentioned that because these two films, while they're not their movies, they're really good representations of Greg and Marlon. And they can uh, be found on Google? Yeah. Uh, Listen to me, Marlon, and a conversation with Gregory Peck. I know they're both out there. But Lying for a Living, his, his swan song, what he wanted to do as a, a final project 
didn't get released. And part of it was... How did you not release such a fabulous title? You know, yeah, isn't that great? I think, you know, one of the people that I write about in the book is um, uh, Warren Beatty had a long dinner with us and told, really, basically told Marlon he shouldn't release them. He thought that uh, it just didn't show him in a good light and he felt it just... You know, I must tell you, that stuns me. Because the one thing that I admire the most of all the stuff that Warren Beatty has done, there are a couple of movies I absolutely love, but Reds. Yeah. When he plays this socialist, John Reed, who goes to the Soviet Union to help Trotsky overthrow the capitalists (laughs) and the Romanovs. I mean, that took such balls in America to make a film like that. And True. that's more dangerous, I think, than Marlon Brando denigrating actors. Well, I think Warren is so smart in this sense. It's funny you mentioned that because that was a, you know, Warren's films are all, I think, very intelligent. And oh, they are. Because he is. I mean, he's he's just an amazingly, you know, he, you look at those films he made through that whole period were so well done. And he just would, there'd be years between them, but they were all so well done and Something like Reds, I think he knew that was going to be a very well-received Hollywood project. What I think he saw with Marlon's final project, Marlon was just trying to teach acting for 12 hours on these tapes that I edited and put together for Marlon. And Marlon was older at the time, and he, you know, that was always the conflict, I think, with, with, with Brando by the end. People, especially like the film I made, Free Money. Uh, some people just didn't like seeing Marlon older and heavier but he was, you know, even though he was heavy, when he spoke, he was irresistible. <laughs> yeah. you, had to, you could not take your eyes off him, and yeah. you focused on the sound of his voice. You forgot what it was that he looked at. And one of the things I admired in the book and about Marlon, I guess it was toward the end of his life, and they were shooting some kind of special for CBS. You know what it is that I'm getting? Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So tell us about what the occasion was and what well, Marlon did. Mar- this was a, a special. It was Michael Jackson's anniversary. And it's funny because both Marlon and Greg were great friends with Michael Jackson. But there was this event in New York to honor Michael the day before 9-11. That's a whole other thing. Oh, but it just happened to be. But Marlon was supposed to introduce Jackson. And he goes out there. And all he's supposed to really basically say is, here's Michael. <laughs> he, he goes out and he goes into this whole speech about atrocities across the world and pe- children being hurt with machetes. And he goes, he goes, it, someone got, a, it's on YouTube. I, I, I suggest people see it because someone actually had to videotape one of the monitors at Madison Square Garden. To get you know it. what it's called on YouTube? You know, I, uh, Marlon Brando, Michael Jackson concert. Oh, probably, and, yeah. and, and they actually videotaped the monitor of Madison Square Garden when Marlon was getting booed off the stage. And I laughed because it was so Marlon. It was so perfect. Instead of just say, all he's got to do is say, here's Michael. And he comes out and he gives this long speech about, about the atrocities of the world, which meant a lot to him. You know, he, to Marlon, it was like, I have this platform. Why am I going to just say, here's Michael, when I can, I can say something that means something. They got booed off the stage. The really sad, sad thing about it, every word he uttered was a truth. Yeah. And in my autobiography, uh, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout, The Changed Face of American Television, 
one of my favorite quotes was one of Jim Garrison's favorite quotes, and it's a 5,000-year-old Persian proverb. He who tells the truth must make sure he has one foot in the stirrups. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so people do not like to hear the truth, and they still don't like to hear the truth. But well, must... no one knows I like Jim Garrison, that's for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, your, your book, I'm going to hold it up again. It, it's Marlon and Greg, and it's just a fabulous, fabulous read. And one of the things I also enjoyed, you keep mentioning your father often during the book. Was uh, I didn't read much about your mother, but there was a lot about your father. Was were, were they really proud of what their boy had become? And was I, they, they very much were? And I, I just I love them dearly. My father's gone, but the um, you know they were just opposites. I, I talked. My mother's probably not mentioned in the book because she is she is just one of these very shy people. And she, I always say, she made me very cautious. Well, my father made me, you know, uh, he gave me courage in a certain way. But uh, they have been, uh, they were just great. I mean, to have two kids go to Juilliard and be encouraging all the time and to, you know, make sure that we followed these dreams. And I mentioned them a lot, too, because Marlon was very much like my father. They were very much... Uh, I can't explain how they were similar, but I could see my father a lot in Marlin. Wow. And I had a grandfather, my mother's father, who was so much like Gregory, who I read, yeah. just oh. a, gen- a gentle, sweet soul. And I just remember the comparisons I made constantly. And of course, because of Tony and Avra, Marlon and Greg were very much at my parent. At, they, they were parents in my mind in a certain way, constantly. But I have to have the best of both worlds because I, uh, unlike Tony and Avra, uh, Avra was very much a daughter to Marlon. Of course, Tony was Greg's son, and they they had to they had those relationships that were beautiful, but they had to deal with. At times, I could just be a friend to Greg and Marlon, and that was those were interesting times. I mean, those were fun times. Well, you tell the stories great in the book, so I guess one last question would be: Did Marlon ever say anything to you about the fact uh, because? What happened with his son was, of course, devastating. Did that sort of contribute to his putting on weight? I I just could not understand why a man who was as attractive and as appealing as Marlon would let himself go like that. Yeah, I, you know, I think so much happened even before that. Marlon had this, uh, as we saw, you and I would see if we think back. The, 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 I think the fame Marlon had was really suffocating. And I don't want to, it's not about, let's feel sorry for Marlon Brando, but he had this very strange fame at a time when fame was just really jumping out of the bottle. And, um, you know I, what the phrase, you know what it was? He was so popular, fans worshipped him. And the yeah. difference with, it didn't affect Gregory Peck because fans respected him. There you go. That's it. That's it. I mean, John, you saw, and, and you were there as a critic, as an observer. Yeah. Uh, you were in the business. You saw it. The, the, the whole aura of Brando was kind of, I, I told him one time, I thought it was ridiculous almost. And he just said, of course it was. It, I mean, was, I had it a, was Beatles-like. Well, that's just it. And no one expected a movie star to be a rock star at that time, really before him. And I think that's where the whole thing got just kind of crazed. And 
you're right. You were talking about where he got lazy late earlier and things like that. But a lot of it was just that the demands on him were just pretty unreal. Well, listen, I, I must tell you, Joseph, you and I could talk forever about show business and movies. I am delighted you're here again. This is a wonderfully interesting book. Honest to God, it truly is. A lot of wonderful stories. Do you want to plug anything? Uh, is there a website or something that people... Well, that, uh, Bear Manor was a company that put it together with me. A great company, Ben Omar and those guys. And it's it's available on Bear Manor, but also it's uh, Amazon and Walmart and uh, Barnes and Noble. Anywhere you can get John's book. And I'm going to order your biography right now because I've seen it. I've read about it. I love the title. How did you come up with it? Uh, I can't tell you, but it was in a conversation with Jim Garrison. I'll tell you very quickly. I tried to book him on the sh- my first show, the AM show, after I read Heritage of Stone. And uh, he said, they'll never have me on television. And he, But he did say, you know, because this is 1970, in 66, the Warren Report, uh, 63, the assassination, 66, the Warren Report. He said, the Gallup poll just pointed out that 83% of all Americans do not believe Oswald did it alone or, or, uh, or did it at all. And I said, well, why aren't people out on the streets? We're on the phone. He's in New Orleans. I'm in L.A. He said, well, you didn't see the qu- second question of the poll. And I said, what was the second question? He says, the second question was, would you like to see a more thorough investigation where both the FBI and the CIA are interrogated? And not part of the investigation. And he said, the, and I said, well, he said, only 21% said yes. So then he said, what does that say to you about Americans, John? And I said, well, Mr. Garrison, I'll tell you what. I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car or on the pool table or in the bedroom. You can see me. But don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. And he laughed and laughed. He said, I'm going to repeat that a lot. Oh, that's great. (laughs) That's how it became the title of the book. Joseph, again, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I think down the roads, we're going to be doing this again. I'd love to do it, John. And it really is an honor to talk to you. I I am a big fan of yours. So so please, anytime call, I'll be here. Oh, thank you so much. My best to Opera, okay? Okay. And my best to you all. We'll see you in another two weeks with another great, Talking Movies with a great guest. Bye-bye.